This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 14th, 2021, and this is episode 222. I'm Stark Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, I have an interview with journalist Justin Ling about his new book, Missing from the Village, and we come back to discuss the latest federal cabinet shuffle. First, thank you to the now 108 people who contribute to the podcast every month. Special thanks to our newest patrons, Gordon, Ann, and Alexandra for their new pledges as well as to Raphael, Melissa, Sancho, Shreyas, Michael, William, and Brad for upping their pledges. I think we had 103 last week, and I only counted three new, but somehow that equals 108. So sorry if I missed anyone else. There's been just a lot of Patreon notifications in the last couple weeks for us, as we've rolled out a few new features for patrons this last week. First off, we can now accept Canadian dollars on Patreon. This likely saves you a bit of money, It saves our transaction fees since we're not paying them multiple times to exchange currencies. And it just makes our accounting easier because we can just look at what it says on Patreon and that's our budget. Existing patrons, you will have to go and change your membership settings if you want to pay in Canadian dollars instead of US dollars. And we do encourage you at that time to consider upping your pledge if you can afford it to cover the exchange rate hit. So if you were current paying 254 Canadian, which is $2 US roughly, maybe go to three. Just saying, if you can. Second, you can now pledge an annual membership. This is if you love us so much that you just think you're going to be supporting us through the whole year. Pledge a whole year up front and you get a discount of 10%. Your life gets easier by not having to remember to update your Patreon credit card in the next year. And I think it saves us a bit on fees because we don't have to pay credit card transaction fees every time. So annual memberships are a thing. And finally, along with all of that, we have a new advertiser who you'll hear from in a minute. We played the first ad last week. It kind of came together last minute, but we've been working on that deal for a little bit. It'll be running for the entire month of January. The sponsorship will help keep the show going, but if you don't love ads, we now have a fully ad-free version via Patreon for everyone who contributes at least $5 Canadian a month. $2 Patrons will still get access to our exclusive Slack channel, but if you up to $5, you will get an ad-free version. And if you are subscribed to the Patreon exclusive feed, but don't give $5, you won't get access to the podcast if everything works in the system. So if you don't subscribe at $5, make sure to subscribe to the free feed on our website, politicos.ca. I think that's all the Patreon updates go to patreon.com slash to figure that out. Now let's throw it over to our sponsors. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. We wanted to let you know about a new podcast, The Peak Weekly. Each week, The Peaks' Brett Chang and Alex Blumenstein talk to the most interesting people in Canadian business. 
Featuring interviews with Canadian leaders in tech, culture, and finance, The Peak Weekly is the fastest way to get smarter about business. You can subscribe to it wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Peak Weekly. Well, first up, last week I spoke to freelance journalist Justin Ling about his recent book, Missing for the Village. I'll throw it over to that interview now. Between 2010 and 2017, a total of eight men disappeared from the neighborhood of Church and Wesley, Toronto's gay district. Bruce MacArthur, a 66-year-old landscaper, was arrested on January 18, 2018, and he pled guilty on January 29, 2019, to eight counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Missing from the Village, the story of the serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community, is the recent book by freelance investigative journalist Justin Ling. Justin, thanks for joining me on Politicoast. Thanks for having me. Before we get into some of the policy and the politics that this book implicates, what you talk about as the system that failed, can you give our listeners a bit of a brief synopsis of the story for anyone who might not have heard of the MacArthur saga? We're not a true kind podcast, so... Yeah, no, understandable. Yeah, so the long and short of it is that uh, between 2010 and 2012, uh, three men disappeared from Toronto's gay village. Uh, They all disappeared from kind of the same area. They went to the same bars. They knew some of the same people. All three of them were South Asian or Middle Eastern. They were around the same age. They looked pretty similar. And it was after those three disappearances that there was a feeling in the community that somebody was targeting them, that there was in all likelihood a serial killer operating in the village uh, and that the police were doing not enough basically to, to find who was responsible. Um, Even after that, you know, that level of anxiety from the community um, police really didn't provide much in the way of updates from there on out. Uh, after the summer of 2013, things sort of went quiet. Uh, police never provided any more updates. And they, they quietly shut down the investigation without really announcing it. And years went by without any sort of update, without really any revisiting of that story, of that case. And it wasn't until 2017 when another man went missing that police came out and announced that there had actually been other disappearances. And months on from that, when they arrested Bruce MacArthur in uh, January of, of 2018, it came out that it wasn't three or four or five missing men, but in fact, it was eight. They discovered the bodies of eight men buried in uh, the backyard of a, of a home sort of northeast of downtown. So in the end, basically, this was you know one of Canada's most prolific serial killers, and it sort of operated right under the nose of Toronto police um, you know, for the better part of, of a decade. For people here in BC, it has a lot of airs of the Robert Picton story of this pig farmer going into Vancouver's downtown east side and picking off marginalized individuals for years and getting away with it without even really arousing suspicion, it seems. Yeah, and and the the similarities are not lost on anybody. You know, I've spoken to Wally Opal, of course, the the you know the former justice who who wrote the report about the failures in the downtown east side. Um, you know, there are officers who investigated Robert Picton. Um, you know, and and all of them sort of agree that the systemic failures that were that existed in in Vancouver are basically the exact same ones 
that you can really trace through Toronto in this case. Um, and it's frustrating, you know, for someone like Wally Opal, because he laid out what you needed to do to prevent this from happening again. And unfortunately, Toronto ignored him and ignored the report he wrote, ignored the recommendations he made, ignored, you know, his underlining of the systemic and structural failures that can lead to this. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. So there's that element of failing to listen to the concerns of the community first. Tied in with that is, you know, allegations of racism and homophobia deep within the Toronto police. Do you want to expand on how you kind of see those issues coming through this story? Yeah, so it's tough. I think people want this to be simple, right? They want to be able to say the Toronto Police Service was racist and it was homophobic and that's why this wasn't solved. And in reality, it's it's more complicated than that. There were, I think, innate biases that led to police not taking these disappearances seriously. There was perpetually this belief that because they were refugees or because they weren't born in Canada or because they were queer, that for whatever reason, they are more likely to pick up and, and disappear, that they were a, the type of person by virtue of, of, you know, being not born here and being queer. They were the type of person who would just pack their bags or not even pack their bags, you know, leave their friends, leave their family, leave their newly adopted puppy, you know, leave their bank accounts, leave their passport and just flee and disappear and hide. Right. And I don't think that's an assumption that police would make about a middle-aged white woman, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a conclusion that you would draw if a banker went missing, right? It is a very particular assumption that seems to be made more often than not when your missing person is marginalized or queer or, you know, racialized or so on. I think there was an effort by some of the officers involved to really dig into these cases. And there was an assumption by some of these officers that a serial killer was operating. Unfortunately, they, you know, an individual officer can only do so much. Ultimately, it is headquarters that decides how much resources you get, how long you get to investigate um, a specific case, you know, how long a specific project might stay open. And in this case, you saw repeatedly situations where headquarters was willing to invest money and time and resources into an, an investigation that originally started as with, with a bizarre tip about an online cannibalism ring that proved completely baseless, but they weren't willing to invest the same level or even a, a, a comparable amount of resources or time or money into a project dedicated to finding three missing people from the village. So, it's a structural problem. If anything, this is a harder problem to solve, and but it's a more dangerous one. This is not something that can be fixed by firing a couple cops or hiring a couple more queer people. This is a problem that gets fixed by structural, systemic change. And that has to go to the highest level of not just the Toronto Police Service, but also the RCMP and local police forces across the country and across the world, really. Because... These were not systems designed to protect queer people or refugees or racialized people. All too often, 
police services are made up of people who don't have a good grasp of those communities, who at the highest level have, um, you know, not interacted with those communities and never had to understand them, have never had to figure out the unique vulnerabilities of those communities and of those populations. And it shows. And I think it showed very clearly right here. Yeah, your book covers so many different aspects of the issue, right? There are things that actually probably are easier or should be easier to fix, like the inability of different levels of police, of like the RCMP versus OPS versus Toronto Police, to just share missing persons files or even keep them in a sensible, consistent record system. I think that was one of the things you discussed thoroughly in there was that the Toronto Police didn't even have all of these people on the missing persons list. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you look at the Opal uh, Commission of Inquiry, his report said very bluntly, you can't catch a serial killer who's targeting marginalized communities if you can't track who's missing and who's not, right? He very bluntly said that that has to be a fix that involves making it easier to report people missing, a fix that means more fulsomely investigating those missing persons cases. It means fixes that involve keeping a dedicated team of, of, of officers who can keep going back to those cases and revisiting them and continuously working on them instead of letting them get forgotten. And also a system that shares those cases within the city and beyond so that you can find linkages and you can find patterns amongst people who are going missing, especially in tight geographic areas or specific populations. Vancouver, by and large, as well as the RCMP, by and large, did that. Toronto didn't. Toronto ignored, absolutely arrogantly and, and, and wrongheadedly ignored so many of those recommendations. And it's really jarring, too, because those recommendations came out just as these men were going missing. If Toronto had read that report and adopted its recommendations, which, by the way, the report was very much geared towards the whole country, not just Vancouver. Um, if Toronto had done those things, I frankly think we would be in a much different spot today. Um, men disappeared from the city without either being reported missing, without having the adequate follow-up, without being linked to the other dis uh, missing persons cases that were incredibly similar. And some of those missing persons cases, I can tell you, never had a full investigation. That's that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable that in a, you know the largest city in Canada, you can disappear and really not receive the base level of, of a work or investigation that you would expect if you go missing. So the, you know, the, the fixes for this are right there on the table. There, this is no mystery as to what you had to do. Toronto police can't, you know, profess hindsight is 2020. They were told at the time what needed to happen and they chose not to do it. This was an active decision they made to not adopt a dedicated missing persons team, to not have a registry, a public facing registry of missing persons, to not adequately investigate um, missing persons cases as they arise, to not link them to each other, to not do the work needed to link those cases that appear similar. So, you know, doing all of that is a good first step, but that's the baseline. That's what should have been done 20 years ago and wasn't. So there's so much remedial work that needs doing here. It, it's almost unfathomable. And, and Toronto police are taking an absolutely lackadaisical approach. They've only just set up the first dedicated missing persons team in Toronto. 
And even then, it's not been funded or staffed to the degree you would expect. You know, there were extensive problems of databases not capturing important and pertinent information about dangerous offenders. It's still not really clear to me that that's been fixed. So there's all of these, you know, real policy structural organizational issues that are outstanding. And Toronto police just don't seem tremendously interested in talking about it. And frankly, the media doesn't seem tremendously interested in pushing it. How much of this would you say is a matter of the wrong leadership? Like, obviously, there are deep systemic issues. But one of the things that came out in this story is the, like, utter destruction of the what little faith there was in the police community by some of the comments by Chief Mark Saunders to the Globe and Mail in the middle of the uh, case where he said, we knew people were missing and we knew we didn't have the right answers, but nobody was coming to us with anything, you know, directly gaslighting the tens, dozens, all the tips they were getting. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 obscene. I mean, what's what's even worse to me is that when he made those comments, when Chief Saunders sat in the Globe and Mail's offices, by the way, I should have been in that room. I was unfortunately out of the country on a different reporting project, but I feel like if I if I were there, I would have thrown my notebook at him. Um, when he made those comments, I, we now know, thanks to some helpful people inside the Toronto Police Service who decided to talk to me, we know that he was aware of the fact that Bruce MacArthur had been interviewed in 2013 after killing three men, had been interviewed by the Toronto Police Service thanks to tips given to them by the community. So think about this. Members of the community, fearing a serial killer, came forward to the Toronto Police Service, oftentimes opening up about their own personal lives in ways that was deeply uncomfortable, you know, forgoing decades of mistrust with the police and coming forward with the, with this information because they believed it was very important for the safety of the community. They told police, the last time I saw my friend alive was with a guy named Bruce MacArthur. They told police, you should look into Bruce MacArthur. He's obsessed with my friend. You know, he's controlling and manipulating my friend. Toronto police took that information. Some very, very good officers took that information, brought Bruce MacArthur in for questioning and asked him about those disappearances. Unfortunately, there wasn't the follow-up there. I think if there had been more resources, more officers, the things may have been different, but unfortunately, they cut him loose, they never treated him as a suspect, and they shut the investigation down. You know, I think at that point, you, you can claim hindsight is twenty twenty. There's no way they could have known in the moment that he, was, that he should have been a suspect. That's, that's how these things go sometimes. But for Chief Saunders... Who, by the way, at that at that point was keeping this secret for Chief Saunders to sit there and say, "Well, the community wasn't bringing us the information we needed," is so offensive. It, I still get so I still get actively mad about this. It is so offensive. It is so callous, and he's never he's never owned up for that, and he was never forced to. The city, by and large, seemed indifferent to the fact that he had done that, but it's not unique. To him, I mean, Chief Saunders was only chief for the last few years of this investigation. If you want to look for who who actually made the decision to shut this task force down, the chief at the time was Bill Blair, who's now our federal public safety minister, who's never really addressed this. You know, the chief before that who antagonized, or one of the chiefs before that, who antagonized and fought with the queer community was Julian Fantino, who again also went into federal politics. You know, I think we have this inability to hold our you know, public safety officials to account on these fronts 
The media doesn't seem to care. Other politicians don't seem to care. The city doesn't seem to care. You can go out and you know, launch raids on queer establishments or launch sting operations to target queer men, which, by the way, uh, Chief Saunders decided to do in 2017, even as um, men were going missing. Um, and you can do all those things and there's no repercussions. You can, as a chief of police in this country, be actively homophobic, you know, actively target the queer community. And what are the consequences? There are none. I think that's been one of the frustrations you know, across the country, across the world, as we look at our police forces and we ask, you know, we're throwing tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes more at these forces. We have what are ostensibly civilian oversight boards. You know, there's Toronto Police Board in BC or in Toronto. We have Vancouver Police Board and similar ones across the province here. But they seem like rubber stamping agencies. In BC, we have the chance to change that possibly with the Police Act reforms that are being studied right now. But we still see the chair of the the committee there here in BC, Gary Begg, an NDP MLA, a former RCMP officer, uh, opened with comments saying the BLM protests seem like more of an American issue. And luckily, we don't have those problems here. Mm -hmm. I I think it's fair to say that the current slate of civilian or political review boards for our police agencies are comically ill-suited and ill-equipped or ill-designed in many cases to actually keep police services honest and to keep them accountable. I mean, you know, where is the accountability for the Toronto Police Service in this? There's an external review going on um, that was basically punted down the line by the by, by the city only after immense pressure from the community. Um, you know, the Toronto Police Service was was launching undercover raids of of men having consensual se- consensual sex in a park in 2017. Where's the accountability for that? The city didn't care. There was, there was no effort from the city to you know to to actually rein in a police force that was targeting the queer community. Um, nor was there, you know, going back you know, 50 years of that sort of activity. Um, there, you know, no matter what police service, I think you'd be hard pressed to point at any police service in the country and say the oversight for them is is robust and adequate. I mean, the RCMP's civilian review board often takes years to release findings, and in some cases, anonymizes them to the point where they're almost illegible because they're so vague. Um, you know, the civilian um, investigation, or sorry, the special investigation unit in Ontario operates as spite with secrecy as a default, often refusing to release even basic details about, you know, what happens when uh, police officers, um, you know, shoot or kill civilians, you know, a trans, a black trans, or sorry, a trans woman in Toronto died in police custody or died after an interaction with police in recent months. And we have no details about what happened. You know, absolutely none. That is to me completely unacceptable. You know, there is a unacceptable lack of accountability or oversight for police forces right across the country. And I don't know how we as a population are okay with that. We just seem blithely indifferent to the fact that, you know, there is probably, you know, blithely like, blindly okay with the fact that there is no real checks or balances 
for how police operate in many circumstances. There's very little uh, oversight of, around police spending, very little oversight around police use of force guidelines, very, very, very little oversight in terms of how they run investigations, what cases they prioritize, how they handle mental health cases. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me the level of indifference we have on that front. Well, Justin, I'm keeping an eye on the time, and I think we've covered a good amount on that. There's plenty more in the book. It's definitely worth people picking up. You know, I'm not a true crime fan, but I did find it really humanizing to read about the victims. You took the time to write about each of these human beings and the lives that they led before they were cut short. And so I think that was well worth, uh, you know, well worth writing about and well worth people reading about before we even get into the issues that led to uh, MacArthur getting away with this for so long. Maybe plug the book and then we can talk yeah, just well, briefly about what you're working on right now because I imagine you're quite busy. Yeah, it's 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 always a new adventure, especially with the state of things right now. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the book has had a fantastic reception and it's been really heartening because, you know, I don't like true crime either, to be totally honest. It's a genre I find kind of predatory and in often cases gross. I tried my best to write a book that wasn't that, right? I tried my best to write a book that did humanize the victims, that did not try to glamorize or dramatize the actions of Bruce MacArthur. One that got into the structural and systemic problems that led to this, uh, less the gruesome minutiae. Um, you know, I tried to provide a historical context, a cultural context. Um, and I, I, I can only hope that it worked. And, and, you know, based on what people have told me, I think I've hopefully, you know, introduced people to, um, you know, aspects of this that they were unfamiliar with before. Yeah, I think it does that. Uh, it's published through Penguin Random House. People can, where, where do you suggest people get it? I think whatever independent bookstore is nearest to you. I, I think a lot of independent bookstores are hurting right now. And I think um, they could always use a little more business. I try to tell people to avoid Sorry, Amazon, but avoid Amazon yeah. uh, if if possible. For some people, it's not negotiable. There's not a lot of independent bookstores nearby, um, but if possible, um, places like Drawn and Quarterly in Montreal, Type Books in Toronto. Um, is Little Sisters still open in Vancouver? I don't even I don't even know anymore. But I believe so. Well, there you go. As well as Book Warehouse, I think is the other. Sure. Yeah. There's a few Pulp Fiction. I don't know if Pulp Fiction would carry it. There's lots of independent bookstores in Vancouver. So you're working on a lot of other things right now. You had a piece out in Foreign Policy talking just before everything happened in the U.S., talking about how QAnon is Trumpism now. What are you keeping your eye on amid all of this, you know, with the caveat that we're recording it early afternoon on Friday, January 8th? And when this comes out, it might be a little dated. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, you know, I think going forward in the coming months, We've got to keep an eye on the groups that have basically unglued themselves from reality, right? There is a class of people in both the U.S. and Canada um, who firmly believe that Donald Trump won this election, that there is an overarching conspiracy you know, run by everyone from the FBI to the government of Israel, um, you know, to everyone in between, that is trying to push the American public into a totalitarian communist dictatorship. And by the way, they're also trafficking children so that they can extract some 
compound from their brains through some Satanist ritual. You know, I know this sounds ludicrous, but you know, this is what many people believe. There's also many other, you know, cousins of this movement who are really who interested in using this opportunity to install a fascist dictatorship in America, who want to go and target, uh, you know, leftists, um, Jewish groups, queer people, people of color, and they are a relatively small minority in America. But I think you can safely say they number in the millions. And that is something we need to be very aware and, and concerned about. Having a, what is in essence, a domestic extremist movement that is, in their minds, fighting you know, f- the, the cause of, of good and the cause of light, um, and who are not afraid to use tactics that could amount to terrorism. I think it's something we need to be very, very cautious about and keep our eyes on. Um, I've occasionally felt like a crank in the past year, warning that violence could be around the corner, warning that all it would take is one rally getting whipped up into a fervor to see instances of political violence in America, instances that may target democratic institutions. And unfortunately, I, you know, I and many other people who follow these groups who were quite right. You, know, you saw a plot to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan. You know, you've seen pipe bombs sent to you know, political groups. You've seen the riots in Washington that you know, led to an, a, an armed mob trying to break into Congress, you know, some of them carrying zip ties, potentially with a plan to kidnap and, or even injure or kill you know, politicians who do not subscribe to the idea that this whole election was rigged. This is something that is is very disconcerting. And I think if we just sort of uh, hope for the best, we're not going to be prepared for what might come. Well, and even here in Canada, we've seen a shooter rampage on Parliament Hill. We see regularly people on far-right groups talk about assassinating Trudeau, storming our parliament. So this is here too just as much or in a different slightly home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you saw um, a self, you know, described QAnon follower break through the front gates of Rideau Hall where the prime minister lives, you know, allegedly with uh, a number of weapons, one of which is illegal and a note uh, threatening to harm or kill the prime minister. You know, we are not immune from this. And I think, um, I think there is a willingness from the media, from politicians to sort of just, pretend like it's not so bad or pretend like we're better and we're not. So we, this is a real concern much in the same way. We were very serious and alert to the, to the threat of, you know, Islamic state inspired lone wolf attacks. We should be very alert and worried to the prospect of, you know, far right or, or online radicalization attacks. We've already seen a number. We've seen the incel attack in Toronto. Um, you know, we've, we've seen, uh, you know, the mosque shooting in Quebec city, we're not immune from this. We should be very, very, very well aware of, of the threats posed here. Well, Justin Ling, where's the best place for people to follow you if they want to keep up on your work? I think, unfortunately, it's Twitter. I think <laughs> Justin underscore Ling on Twitter is probably the the best place to, to keep track. But I also have a website, justinling.ca, where I, uh, I try to update it semi-frequently with, with what's going on. Just as long as it's not Parler or Gab, you're still not in the bad I don't. I, I'm not, not going to sign up for Gab. No real, no real risk of me joining the far right internet. 
All right, Justin, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Moving on to our second segment, Cabinet Shuffle. So I was pleasantly surprised this week when I got to check off my first prediction that we went over last week when I successfully called it was a Cabinet Shuffle. Yeah, this happened surprisingly early in the year. It's not a huge one. Uh, I forget, what did we define a, a serious Cabinet Shuffle as? I think we said three people. Okay, there's, four. At least, there's at least three in this one. Uh, the big news was precipitated by Liberal MP Navdeep Baines uh, announcing that he would not seek re-election, and he has now stepped down as Minister of Science, Innovation, and Industry. Uh, commonly just referred to as Minister of Innovation, which is the dumbest but most on-brand liberal party name for a ministry i could possibly think of no it's not it's not the minister of middle class prosperity <sighs> yeah maybe you got a point there but it's just so close it's definitely up there baines has said he wants to spend more time with his family and things like that and so once the election comes he will not run again he stepped down from cabinet effective immediately. Taking his place will be Francois-Philippe Champagne, who was the current foreign affairs minister, and I guess now the innovation minister. Yeah, so this kind of, I think, caught everyone by surprise a bit, uh, especially because of what triggered it. Navdeep Baines has been a long-time Liberal Party stalwart, and from what I gather, was you know, expected to be kind of a lifelong politician, so it's surprising that this took place um there's been no rumors of anything that like really prompted it beyond the standard want to spend time with the family thing so this is one of those little mysteries out there uh maybe he was overseas over christmas <laughs> getting out of the way before the uh bad news hit probably i i guess not but uh well, we'll leave it up to the uh, Intrepid Ottawa Press Corps to figure uh, this slight mystery out. Uh, but yeah, as you said, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne uh, moves over to Innovation, which, despite its kind of stupid name, is basically the rebranded uh, industry ministry and actually controls a pretty large chunk of the government. Uh, so well, it isn't, I guess, quite as... like on the face prestigious as foreign affairs can be, it's still pretty much just a lateral move. Yeah. Champagne moved into foreign affairs, I believe only in the fall after Christian Freeland was upped to deputy prime minister and minister of everything. Yeah. He he's, hasn't been in the ministry too long. Um, yeah. Before that was Christian Freeland and Prior to that was uh, Stefan Dion, and I don't know. This is what ministry minister number three that's leaving the portfolio. Beyond do everything possible to keep the trade with the U.S. going, I don't think this government, even after five years, anything approaching a uh, coherent foreign policy, which is fair. 
filling out, rounding out the shuffle, Mark Garneau moves from transportation into the foreign affairs ministry, and uh, MP Omar Algahabra, I believe is how you pronounce that, is promoted to cabinet to become the new minister of transportation. Garneau is a fairly prominent MP and having a former astronaut move from transportation to foreign affairs. I mean, space is a foreign area and dealing with that, I guess, is a foreign affair. They were trying to stretch in the the, how do we fit him being an astronaut into any discussion of him just a little bit on this one. Uh, I don't know much about Alga, Alga Habra um, other than I don't think he is an Islamic extremist as was somewhat alluded to by Yves-Francois Blanchet today when he said questions should be asked about his connections to the quote political Islamic movement. I believe he was the former head of the Canadian Arab Federation, not an extremist organization in most people's books, I believe. Definitely not, but... uh... I, I, I don't even know where to start with Quebec politics on this. It, it's, it's a goddamn mess on that. So yeah, not, not a great take from uh, the block, to put it mildly. Yeah, it, smell, it doesn't pass the smell test very well. Uh, the only other move named today was Jim Carr has been renamed the special representative to the Prairies. He had stepped down from that role to receive cancer treatment. Um, the Liberals don't have a very strong base in the prairies right now, so making sure to have that position, which they I, are using their way to try to... N- not a strong base kind of understates just how completely absent the Liberal Party is in the electoral map in the prairies. So Jim Carr is a Winnipeg, Manitoba MP, Winnipeg South Center. Uh, it's nice for the Liberals to have a voice in yeah, it's basically the lone outpost of liberalism in uh, the prairies. But yeah, I don't know if one MP will be enough, especially given the sentiments in Alberta so often. Yeah, I, I don't think this is going to be an electoral move for them. It's a, you know, you, you need to have somebody from every part of the country represented to make sure all the parts of the country feel heard. But uh, speaking of electoral moves, this sparked a whole lot of speculation about whether that means there is going to be a election coming up because if ministers are stepping down because they aren't going to seek re-election, you know, what, what do they know about that? Trudeau, for his part, expressed that he does not want an election right now uh, his quote-unquote preference would be that the race is at least in the fall after mass vaccinations are complete, but he hasn't totally ruled out an election whenever he feels like, or whenever the opposition parties call it, in his words. Well, that is always the thing in minority governments. And they generally would rather be defeated than be seen to go to the polls uh, to the point where they'll often engineer their own defeats. But I'll also recall a certain one, Jonathan Horgan swearing up and down basically right up until he 
entered the grounds uh, of the lieutenant governor's residence that he wasn't going to call an election here. It's the every political leader does this where they claim they don't want an election before at the last minute swapping uh, their position on it. So Trudeau's words on this really should be given absolutely no weights because no prime ministers or premiers should be. What is interesting here is we're only seeing one cabinet member resign triggering this. There wasn't a raft of individuals because I'm assuming if Trudeau was looking at a sooner election or even if he's just looking at elections this year, he's asking all of the people in his cabinet at very least, if not caucus, to make their intentions known internally. And if you're a cabinet member, it's probably now is a good time to get out of the way if you're not going to be continuing in politics to let other people come to the fore and have the focus. Yes, and also it means the party can then figure out their candidacies for the 338 spots on the ballot they have to fill. I I did notice that uh, the former liberal candidate in my writing has announced uh, he will be seeking an election just out in the Tri-Cities area. I forget the name of the exact writing. So there's, on one hand, I don't want to read too much into it because parties kind of well in advance of elections start thinking about and start open figuring out who their candidates are going to be. So it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be an election imminent, but at the same time, two kind of have to wonder given how close it was with uh, this announcement here. But the only other thing on that on time of election, I'll say is, well, I think they probably want an election sometime this year. I still stand by my opinion from the last couple episodes that I think they're going to want to get the climate legislation that they've announced out of the way well before they actually go to the polls. And that probably doesn't mean there's going to be one in the next couple months. You know, I do hope we can get more people vaccinated before we go to an election, but at very least Ontario and Quebec need to get their case numbers under control because it was one thing watching numbers start to go up in BC during the election. It's another when your case numbers are just out of control and people are in literal lockdowns and curfew orders to consider calling it. So let's wave over with first. Yeah, for the most part, people have put the blame on the provinces for not handling COVID well. Uh, I, I say the most part because... I generally don't think the the BC leadership got enough flack for uh, the climbing case counts this fall. But putting that aside, that's something that could change very quickly when there's an election and all eyes are focusing on what Justin Trudeau is doing and everything he's done over the past year, which makes it a pretty big risk to call an election during spiking case counts in the two most populous provinces and before the vaccinations really get outside of the kind of poorest high priority population. In any case, we'll keep our eyes on federal politics as people get vaccinated and as these new ministers fall into their roles. 
Moving on to quick takes. First up, it looks like the NDP gained some successful traction last week when they re-upped their petition to declare the Proud Boys a terrorist or a hate group. And the federal government is now allegedly looking into this. This follows the Proud Boys being a prominent member or being, this follows the Proud Boys featuring prominently in the attacks and riots at the U.S. Capitol uh, almost 10 days ago now. It's, 10 day, it's just a week ago yesterday, so okay. eight. I guess, I guess eight's almost 10. Anyway, we're not here to debate the calendar. Um, so Bill Blair, the public safety minister, said they're going to look at it, but it's going to be a, a non-political decision, which you know it really should be. I, I get why the NDP are, are pushing this, but... I, I don't want pe- organizations being put on terror watch list because a party leader complained about it a lot. It really should be the sort of thing that happens because the public safety professionals ha- have made the appropriate determinations on this. I largely agree with that. I think part of the onus and the push by the NDP was to highlight that far too often those officials and the biases in those departments leads to white supremacist groups and far-right groups not being taken as seriously historically as uh, Islamic extremist or other kind of extremist groups. So I see a reason to uh, public pressure around this. Now, there's also been a bit of a left backlash in a way from a number of voices on Twitter who criticize the idea of labeling even the Proud Boys or other far-right groups as terrorists, even labeling Nazi groups as terrorists, just because the whole framework is rather problematic and tends to get used in government overreach. And I will link to Harsha Wally's tweet thread on this, which I think is quite intelligent, but it's not an argument I'm totally uh, swayed over to. Yeah, I mean, you got to give them credit for the uh, commitment to contrarianism, at, at the very least. Um, so, just picking up briefly on a what you mentioned that uh, in the past these groups haven't got enough attention. I think that's going to change in a really big way. Following this, like, I, it has not sunk in how big a deal what happened at the Capitol was, and until then, yeah, I don't think a lot of security agencies were really taking this as seriously as they should have been. But that sure changed that quickly. And then now you have the entire U.S. national security apparatus is going to be laser-focused on this. Well, maybe not laser-focused. They're big. No body that big is laser-focused on anything, but their attention will be brought to bear on this. And the to a first approximation somewhere in the 500 billion to a trillion dollar a year apparatus is going to be taking this seriously and doing everything doing a lot to disrupt and uh disband and arrest these groups so i that i think is going to be something we'll be seeing in the coming months on this, but no, no large organization changes on a, a dime. It's a so uh, yeah, 
that I think is going to change. Now, I do think there is a reasonable pushback to what I've seen are calls for you know new domestic terror legislation coming out of the U.S. and it's not uncommon for Canada to follow behind on this, but I just don't really think it's necessary because the problem wasn't the laws on the books. The problem was security wasn't taken seriously in the lead up to it and, and warnings were ignored. But as we've been watching over this past week, the FBI's had no problem rounding up a whole bunch of them and that's going to continue going forward. The our equivalents would be able to probably be just as effective on that here with the laws we have on the books. So I don't, I see no reason why the terrible events of last week should result in legislative changes on this. That goes both to uh, I think the criticisms you were alluding to from the left because you also don't want to be doing these sorts of changes during period of heightened emotions and for the calls from others to add new laws. Yeah, I was going to make exactly that point, but you covered it. Well, <laughs> next up, uh, one person who is looking to see what the law allows them to do in terms of new government powers or enacting ones that have not been previously used is... The premier who revealed today during a press conference that he is looking to see whether or not he can impose an interprovincial travel ban on people coming in and out of BC. Mostly coming in, I presume. Yeah, so he's tasked this to the Minister of the Attorney General, David Eby, and it's a, it's interesting timing, really. This feels like something we should have been thinking about months and months ago, not necessarily instituting the ban, but at least exploring the legal realm, right? I have yeah, that's a, on my desk and one of the big sections is mobility rights. And that's one that's not easily stepped on. Yeah. Although there's always the uh, section one uh, limitations on that. So yeah, I, I can see why it'd be a tricky question that, you know, the, the lawyers will have to figure out. I, I'm not going to be able to offer a particularly insightful legal take here. But I will agree with you and that it's a question of why wasn't this asked before? And that's a general feeling I have pretty much anytime anything re with regards to COVID response gets brought up. It is. But yeah, be be better late than never. It is interesting to see it now because I think looking at where the case numbers are across the country and what trend you can try and suss out from that, BC seems like we're on the downswing from a second wave versus, as I mentioned before, Ontario and Quebec looking far less optimistic. And it would almost be a preventative, let's block the bug from coming back here than anything else. Yeah. So a lot of beans a lot has been made about how much of Australia and New Zealand's success can be attributed to them being islands, even though one of them's technically a continent. But A, I, I don't think that's a particularly great analogy because the UK certainly hasn't fared well despite being an island. But 
even if it is the case, like BC could reasonably approximate an island and because we don't actually have all that many ways in and out of the province by road. There, every border to the south has uh, controlled entry and exit points. Uh, the north and east both have fairly limited roads that you could easily set up checkpoints uh, if need be. So like, we could absolutely do this. Logistically, it is not a challenge. It is entirely a legal question. So I'll be interested to see where this comes out. I'm just actually pulling up the map of BC right now. I count, I think, five separate border crossings in total to Alberta. Yeah, uh, it's a little harder to tell up in like the Peace area where it's just oh, flat maybe openness. One, yeah, and there's some like smaller. Yeah, ones. there's some like small country roads there. But in terms of major routes in and out, yeah, it's mostly a few highway passes between the populated and parts of the province regularly for weather. Uh, so here we are. Yeah, you, you you could station a couple RCMP cars up there, build a little shelter if need be. It, it is entirely doable to put in a checkpoint there and control entry and exits and enforce uh, quarantining for anyone entering the province. It, it is entirely a question of the legalities and political will. It is worth remembering though this is a a provincial government that's been very reluctant to institute travel public health orders whether they're even just domestic ones bonnie henry was asked about that today and she talked again about how repeatedly it's an advisory that you don't travel and the logistics of deciding what is essential because we do still need trucks to move across the border there is a good amount of quote-unquote essential travel that will need to happen that a travel ban is probably not going to cut off so those questions may kill it more than the constitutional ones but the constitutional ones may also kill it i know the canadian civil liberties association is already strongly critical of this as they appeal or they intervened in a case out in nova scotia i believe who set up a travel ban, or that may have been the Atlantic bubble they were challenging. So, interesting to see where our rights go. And finally, speaking of predictions made, I get to mark one as probably wrong, as Todd Stone announced this afternoon that he has decided not to put his name forward for the BC Liberal Party once more. In a extended Facebook post, he talks about how he spent the holidays with his family skiing. Let's assume it was at Sun Peaks and not awkwardly at some ski hill that was a further distance from Kamloops. Although this would be a really good way to like very subtly break the news on yeah. that. I don't know Sun Peaks well enough to tell from the photos of his family skiing if that's where they were. All ski hills kind of look the same at some point. Uh so he wants to spend more time with his family before his kids go off to university. Which is a- he's relatively young. I think he's still in his 40s. So, yeah, with a long political career ahead of him, he could opt to sit this one out. Uh, as well, he did come in, I believe it was fourth in the last leadership race. So it, it could also be a calculation that 
there isn't necessarily a clear path to victory as well. But that's really going to depend on who else puts their name forward, which we just don't know yet. And hey, maybe he will run for the leadership of whatever the BC Liberals rename themselves. I don't think that's going to happen. The, the run. Not this year. Maybe the renaming will happen. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>